Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. We're gonna read up on a lot of plays and talk about them in many ways. So welcome to the show. Welcome to Read More Plays, the comedy podcast about plays in the artistic process. I'm Jennifer Sassaman. And I'm Ricardo Frederick Evans. This week, we are going to be talking about John Robin Bates' family drama, Other Desert Cities. Other Desert Cities was a finalist for the 2012 Pulitzer Prize in Drama and was nominated for five Tony Awards with one win for Best Actress in a Featured Role. There's been so much family drama this season. I know this family in our play Other Desert Cities has some issues, but after August Osage County and the Mac and Cheeses, the Wyatts seem downright normal. That is a fair bit of perspective. Before we begin our discussion, we do want to give a content warning about this play because it has some elements that might be triggering. Other Desert Cities has in-depth conversations about a family member's suicide, as well as depression, alcoholism, and highly problematic, read, bigoted, language from the conservative characters. And as such, our conversations will likely touch on some or all of these topics. We know some of you might find these topics upsetting so if you are sticking around for the conversation now you know they're coming and if any of these things are too much and you want to sit this episode out we completely understand next episode we'll be having our annual conversation comparing a classic text with a modern adaptation by discussing both carlo galdoni's commedia dell'arte romp servant of two masters and richard bean's wildly hilarious modern version of the same story one man, two governors, and we will look forward to having you back with us again. Yeah, there's nothing triggering there unless you can't handle people getting hungry at work and not having food on hand. <laughs> Hashtag forward. It'll make sense later. How about now it's time for the hot takes. Delete hot takes. Every episode, we start off answering the same five questions to give you a quick look at our general impressions of the show. I'll take a number the first. <laughs> what do you think is the best thing about this show? I think the best thing about this show, uh, it is an amazingly dynamic conversation um, that uh, uh, just that from start to finish, it it just kind of goes nonstop, at least has, has a sense. And uh, but it's all about these flawed complex characters but it's really mm. captivating um mm -hmm. and <laughs> heartbreaking so mm -hmm. that's a lot that's more than one thing but like it's all those things uh what do you think is the best thing my favorite thing about this show is that i think it is gloriously built for the actors i love a show in general i love a show that um where there are no bad guys where everybody mm -hmm. can really believe in the character they're playing and is doing something a little bit crappy. I, I feel like it's it's really plausible where, you know, none of us are uniformly good or uniformly bad. So, you know, to not have someone who is like the evil antagonist who is plotting to destroy the innocent protagonist. But everybody who is cast in the show should be able to 
just really get their shoulder behind their, that character's actions and push for the duration of the show and really feel and everybody has moments of like oh dang oh that's not good i oh i didn't realize that oh that's bad of me i'm sorry um so to <laughs> be able to learn and grow and push and get angry and believe in your character i mean what an experience i think it's just i think it is so well written agreed agreed what do you see is the biggest problem with the text okay so i i i think that the conversation and the the script is amazing um but i kind of felt like at the end of the play and i don't know if this is too spoilery but i kind of felt like polly and lyman were let down a little bit too easily um mm. i you know i don't necessarily don't I... <laughs> I don't necessarily want to say any more than that though <laughs> but... <laughs> wait till the quiz wait till we yeah, get yeah, to yeah. the quiz <laughs> so the spoilers come out in the quiz <laughs> that's all that's all i'll say what do you think is the biggest problem with the text my biggest problem i have two problems i i feel like Part of the there are like five lines in the course of the show that I think in 2010 were like edgy and now are gonna cause big emotional reactions for people where people are like well I've canceled that character like there the world has changed enough that there are those five lines it's like oh can we change those lines please um, so that's a problem. I don't know what to do about that. I think the other problem is also a difference in time. This play is set in 2004, but it was written in 2010 or 2011, which means that in 2011, when the show opened, it was built on a cultural awareness of seven years ago. But that's now 20 years ago. And there's a kind of ready awareness that allows for shorthand to exist in the text. Like if I make a joke about George Santos right now, a fair number of people in the country, anyone who pays attention to the news, whether conservative or liberal, they're going to know what I'm referencing. But in five years, I doubt that name is going to even ring a distant bell. It's going to be so far behind us. And there'll maybe be like these mental hits like, oh yeah, I little remember it. 20 years, that's gone. And so... You have to provide enough dramaturgy so that the audience can come on the ride with you. Like there's a right on page two, Lyman says, but Brookie, what if there's another attack? It's only been a few years. Okay. In 2004, if you say, if you're talking about New York and you say there might be another attack, everyone's going to know you mean 9-11. Even in 2010, in the context of her living in New York, probably you'll know what that means. But I read it as, you know, having lived quite, you know, as an adult, quite aware of 9-11 while it happened. I read that it was like an attack. Did she have a heart attack? Is she having panic attack? It took <laughs> me a couple of beats like, oh, he means 9-11. There's a savage roast uh, about Donald Rumsfeld digging up weapons of mass destruction. It's a hilarious <laughs> burn. If you know about 2004 and weapons of mass destructions, <laughs> and if you don't, it's like, huh? There's enough throughout the text of, huh, um, that would have been immediately ready in everybody in the, in the zeitgeist in 2010. So it's just like, how do you get everybody where they need to be to go on the journey of the play? That's, uh, that's my biggest problem. Okay, cool, cool, cool. What 
is your favorite quote from the play? You know, I started collecting all of the outrageous stuff that Polly was saying. <laughs> she just said the craziest stuff. <laughs> so, and she just threw it out. Just threw it out in the air. It's all or nothing with your generation. Either vegans or meth addicts. <laughs> I was just <laughs> like, whoa. <laughs> you just never knew what Polly was going to say. <sighs> Oh, my gosh. I felt the same way about Silda. I was like, some of her lines were <laughs> my absolute favorites. And I couldn't decide which one I really wanted so to these use. these are great characters. All of them. Yeah, they actually mm-hmm. all are. Um, I think I settled on... Okay, so this is a Silda quote. Um, she says, what? You thought there would be no consequences to telling the truth? Telling the truth is a very expensive hobby. At least yours leaves you with something. My little hobbies left me broke. I wrote that um, one down too. Yeah, I mean, many of the things that Silda says are are freaking hilarious. Um, this is this is a pretty matter of fact statement, but I feel like it, uh, at least for me, kind of uh, captures uh, some of the 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 central theme of the play. Um, <laughs> but. Yeah, like most of her other stuff just cracked me up. Mm-hmm. It's a great, it's a, it's a roller coaster of a character. If you were to work on this show, what production role would you want? I don't know that any of these characters written for me. Um, I would probably be in the audience. Um, mm-hmm. Alternate universe, though. <laughs> alternate universe. I would love to play Trip. <laughs> um, that's a fun role. Oh, 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 um... Gosh, or even uh, Lyman. You have some like, time. You can some... play in a, in a decade or two or three. You can play Lyman. Yeah, there's some juicy stuff to to, to work with there. He's a beautiful. Like, all of the characters are are yeah. So everything. <laughs> yeah, Tripp's monologue where he talks about how you know people who are traumatized really just want to trash other you know trash what little happiness they have he's got such such great stuff. fun lines yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um what production role would you like were you to work on the show you know i started out i've I, i've read this play many times i really like this play um i thought about directing it for open door um and i and so I kind of went in thinking, I want to play Brooke. But, and then I was like, well, I probably want to play Silva at some point, like when I'm older. And as I read through it, it was like, I really want to play Polly. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm too young for Polly. I do not read my current age on stage. I, I'm, I read nowhere near Polly's age on stage. She's the opposite of me in a thousand ways, which is, of course, why it would be so fun to play her. But at the same time, that the way that she would do anything to care for her children, it, it's a really neat thing to be completely different for, from somebody and yet share the strongest core identity with the wow. character. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's funny. There are so many of those threads, I think, in a, in a, in a lot of the characters. And mm-hmm. most of the characters, I thought that I mm-hmm. found myself like, like feeling like, you know, I could be on either end of the conversation. I was yeah. like, this is really wild because, uh, you know, of course, initially I was like, I don't know. And what do I, what can these people teach me? <laughs> what can these characters <laughs> teach me? They're all, they're, they all seem despicable. Well, not all of them, but, you know, they are, they definitely don't 
they're definitely not um, the folks that I I would respect initially. I think, um, but the playwright does a great job at at, at making them human. Human, <laughs> human yeah. Mm-hmm. So next question: What character do you think uh, is most like you in the play? I feel the most like Trip. Uh, I think he's trying very hard to mediate the whole family so that they can love each other and and be there for each other and, and not just enjoy Christmas, but, you know, enjoy being in each other's lives. Um, I think he also is really invested in creating art that puts happiness into the world. That's his primary drive. He wants, he's like, everything is so messed up. People need joy. I think he is so freaking irritated that everyone else is just trying to smash everything to pieces, but he just gets up and tries and he's positive and peaceful and funny. So I was like, I see what you're doing there. I feel like I do that a lot. (laughs) And you? Yeah, interesting. I wanted to be tripped so bad because I loved I loved the way he was just being straight up and honest and and uh, completely oh, basically the only one doing that out of all of the characters like that being that voice. Um, I was like, nah, I kind of wanted that. And I feel like there are some character traits that I might share with Trip, but uh, I felt really strongly connected to Brooks journey I think in um mm. feeling like she's uh, these she's got these answers or she doesn't have these answers so she's trying to find she's search she's on a search for answers she's trying to she's doing the doing it the only way she knows how um but she doesn't have all she doesn't have all of the the pieces of the puzzle that she needs to really really come up with answers so I don't know a lot of her journey resonated with me Mm-hmm. Well, it's like we're siblings. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, some of those conversations that they were having with each other. I was like, this is... It's a great scene. <laughs> so I used, great. I used to give that scene to my students in my acting class. I am so rolling a giant. <laughs> I smell pot. Um <laughs> Just because I can't drink alcohol doesn't they didn't say anything about drugs. <laughs> it's like, all right, Sylvie, yes. Uh, you gotta okay. love a part where you can just take a nap on stage. I would be so scared Ooh. that I would actually fall asleep. <laughs> you can't do that to an actor. Um, <laughs> as always, we'd love to hear your hot takes. Just a reminder that you can post them on our social media pages or send them to us in a voice message for us to play during our community voices section. And now the section where I test Ricardo to see how well he knows the plot of other desert cities by giving him a quiz about what happens in the show. If you've read the play, you can take the quiz along with us as you listen. But if you haven't, this is a great way to get familiar with the story. Just to set this up for those of you who did not read the play, Other Desert Cities is a story about Brooke Wyeth, who has returned home to California after a six-year absence to celebrate Christmas with her parents, her brother, and her aunt. She has brought one heck of a present in her suitcase that's about to blow up the holidays for all five of them, but I'm sure Jennifer is about to ask all about that in the quiz. I surely am. 
Just a reminder that if there are any questions you don't know the answer to, you can always use a lifeline and call our friendly neighborhood sound engineer, Sam, so he can give you the answer. On to the quiz. <laughs> Question number one. Brooke Wyeth has flown home for Christmas with her family. Her parents, Polly and Lyman Wyeth, live in Palm Springs, California, and her brother Tripp lives in L.A., but has also made the trek to the desert for the holiday. The play opens with the four of them having just returned from playing tennis and getting ready to go have breakfast. Though she's only been in town for a few hours, her parents are, are already not so subtly suggesting that she buy the house next door and move back west. But they also tell Brooke they are very proud of her. What has she done to make her mom and dad so proud? So Brooke uh, is a writer and mm -hmm. she had written a novel a long time ago, like one novel and apparently six years ago, six years ago, the, that one, that one, one and done or, but it looks like it wasn't one and done after all. She's actually written another novel, another book, another book. And She's written another book. And gotten it, and she sold. It's going to be published. That is correct. Bonus follow-up. What has Brooke been doing uh, in the years since she published her first book? Uh, she's been suffering from depression. Uh, that's one of the reasons why yes. she actually has. Yes. Her father even says at one point, you know, you lost years. You lost years to being depressed. Question number two. Trip is the showrunner for a popular reality TV show mm. called Jury of Your Peers. Yes. When his mother jokes that she and Lyman failed at providing normalcy, she says, we had two children, both of whom have entirely abnormal careers. Brooke corrects her mother by saying what? She says three. She mm -hmm. tells her, or she has to remind her mother that they actually had three children. <laughs> that line made me so mad. I was just like, look, little girl with no children, you do not need to remind a parent they've lost a child. You just shut up. It made <laughs> it really made me so mad. Really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, of course they know they lost a child. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Oh. Bonus follow-up. Brooke tells Tripp that she's nervous about showing the book she's written to her parents because it's about Henry, this third child. What do we learn has happened to Henry in the past? Yeah, so we learned that Henry committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he not only committed suicide, prior to that, he was living that rebellion life pretty hard. Um the way she describes it, she says that he went to war with our parents and he joined a cult um, and then was part. There was a bomb that was planted in an army recruiting station that went off and it killed somebody. Uh, although Tripp pretty quickly says he didn't plant the bomb. Um, but yes. And so this all happened. It's not entirely specific, but it seems Tripp was five years old when it happened and he's in he's in his mid to late 20s in this show. So we're talking about something that happened at least 20 years ago. Very good. Excellent and correct. Question number three. In addition to Tripp 
producing television shows, and Brooke writing books, the rest of the family has also had jobs as working artists. What are the arts job that Polly, Lyman, and their goofy Aunt Silda have had? Uh, Lyman was a, a Hollywood actor. Mm-hmm. Um, Polly, oh my God, what was Polly? Uh, um, Silda was a, was Silda a makeup artist? Or she just likes doing that Hollywood touch? She likes that TV That's touch. Holly, that TV touch. But... <laughs> the TV touch. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh, what was Polly? I think I'm going to phone a you have to ask what Silda was too, because she was not a makeup artist. Okay, so um, Lifeline and Gage. Break out that phone. Hello, Sam. Uh, Ricardo, I right. need some help. <laughs> so uh, they both co-wrote at least two movies. That I can't remember what the name of the movies the were. Hillary Wait, movies. Was the Hillary movies. Ah, yes. The okay, Hillary yeah, movies. Yes. All I could think of was Medea, but that's not <laughs> the correct one. Um, they they did not. The Hillary movies. They did not write the Medea movies. <laughs> no, it seemed very much like the Gidget movies. It was like Hillary goes yeah. surfing. <laughs> Hillary yep. does Vegas. Yeah. Except for the last one. Yes, the last one Silda wrote on her own. She and Polly had stopped writing together. Yes. So they wrote screen screenplays for movies um, at MGM and Lyman made movies where he was either a detective or a cowboy with Paramount Pictures. Good job, Lifeline. <laughs> yeah. Spanks. <laughs> uh, bonus follow up. What did Polly and Lyman start doing once they got out of the movie business? This is when they got involved in politics. Yes. Yes. They got super involved in the Republican Party. Um, Lyman actually became the GOP party chair. Um, they said that when Ronald Reagan was elected president, he nominated Lyman to be an ambassador, although they didn't say where. And also at some point he served on the California wine board. But there, there's repeated references to Ronnie and Nancy. And, you know, when they talk about the Bushes, it's like, oh, yes, we have dinner there. So they are they are in with uh, that Republican crowd, which, you know, in 2004, I think a lot of the liberal people in this play would have had like a vitriolic reaction <laughs> yes. to. Although... Given the way things have turned, they seem like, oh, I mean, not to in any way suggest that Reagan or Bush was a good president, either Bushes, but oh, perspective is a bitch. Yeah, I still felt like a, <laughs> I still felt like a, some sort of reaction <laughs> just reading it. <laughs> and with, yeah. this is 20, I mean, they're, almost 20 years later. Or it's years. weird how... It's weird how bigoted is, and yet how much more progressive than the current conservative wing is. <laughs> like, it's bad, sad. but it's not like Marjorie. Yeah. God, Marjorie MTG, Taylor Green. MTG. Very good. Um, question number four. Scene two begins in the late afternoon, still Christmas Eve. 
Polly and Silda are wrapping Christmas presents and sniping at each other when Trip and Brooke come back from town. Brooke has made two copies of her book so that everyone can read it and get the suspense over with since everyone's a bit on edge about its contents. Brooke tells them it's not a novel like she had so said. It started out that way, but it turned into a memoir along the way. When Polly finds out it's about Henry, she gets extremely defensive and temperatures all around the room elevate. Lyman suggests that since it takes a while for books to get published, why don't they just set the book aside until after the new year and just enjoy the holidays? Brooke admits that the book won't be published until the fall, almost a year away. But why can't she get on board with the tabling the discussion until they hit 2005? Why do they have to read the book now? Look at the face of the sound engineer. He knows the answer. Well, I think we should get him on the line. Mm-mm, call him back. Uh, redial. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. <laughs> Hello. What is this? Twice in one episode? This is apparently this there's no limits to lifelines. <laughs> You could have all the lifelines. I think we established that season one, episode one. I was like, everything you said in this in the question, I was like, oh, I knew all of that. I knew all of that. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, what? That's why the quizzes are challenging. Arg. All right, uh, trusty lifeline. What is the second drink that Polly orders? From her house? No, I'm just... The second drink. That- no, no, no. Don't not worry that about it. I just said no, random no, words. Oh, no. Wrong Scotch question. and Wrong soda. <laughs> <laughs> Scotch and soda is the only one that I remember. <laughs> I just remember that Brooke and, and, and Trip were drinking whiskey. But no, the question about why, what's the time pressure element? Mm. The time pressure element is a New York Times article that's going to print <sighs> excerpts from the book that happened to... Mm-hmm. Fall out, something happened, they weren't able to run the original thing, so uh, they they have to get uh, the excerpts that they're going to run by the first. Actually, even before, Lyman like just before. Too. Or before the first, yeah. sorry. Yeah, mm-hmm. Lyman, before like, oh first. yeah, it's going to become an article and then a novel. Uh, okay. No comment. Yeah. Mm. No, you're going to take the absolute most nightmarish, horrible thing that ever happened to us? And put it in the New Yorker and then a published novel? Sounds great. Good times. Yes. The it's the New York Times wants to publish sections of her book in February. And since the February issue goes to print just before the end of the year, tick-tack. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Tick-tock. Let's make sure tick-tock, no one's going to sue Brooke. us over this. <clears throat> yeah, Very so good. She needs to get there okay. <clears throat> Question number five. The remainder of Act One is centered around whether Brooke has the right to publish her version of what happened or not. Trip leaves. He's fed up with the family attacking each other. Polly, upon seeing how deeply her brother's suicide continues to haunt Brooke 20 years later, takes one of the copies of the book off into another room to read it. And Lyman heads out to smoke a cigarette. Left alone with her aunt, what part do we learn Silda had in helping Brooke write her book. Uh, Brooke was sending sending pages to Aunt Silda um, mm-hmm. and basically saying, you know, does this sound right? Does this sound right? Is this how it happened? Is this how it went down? So she was mm-hmm. getting Silda, she was getting Silda's uh, basically approval of the story. 
Yeah. And it sounds like Polly makes reference to everything else that Brooke has ever written and how Brooke always sent her drafts and she was always reading her daughter's writing. And the fact that she's seen nothing about this has got her super on edge. But I guess it was Silda that she was sending everything to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even when she starts to kind of back off, like, maybe I shouldn't print this. Maybe this will hurt them. Silda's like, no. We, I couldn't down. help Henry. This will help Henry. Yeah, she's pretty emphatic that Brooke needs to publish. Good. Bonus follow-up question. When Lyman re-enters, he asks Brooke to wait until they're dead to publish the book. Brooke says she can't stay silent anymore. Lyman then tells her about why he never wrote his own memoir. Uh, what has kept him from doing that? He said that he um, didn't want to hurt his friends, um, his family, his friends, his family, um, basically his political buddies. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. He And the way he would have hurt them is because what he would have detailed in the book is when Henry was implicated in this bombing and the, the accidental murder of the, the veteran that was in the building that was bombed, all the friends just dropped them. Yeah. Uh, even though it was their son, it wasn't them. Polly and Lyman got ostracized by these GOP people. And Polly, and that, Polly was relentless in, in, uh, yes. in trying to stay in the social circles. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. And, and she was able to get Nancy Reagan back. You know, she was determined enough and got Nancy, Nancy back on her side. And then Nancy talked to Ronnie. And then Ronnie and Nancy threw them a party and they were back. Welcome back into the GOP fold. All because of Polly's will. Yes. Perfect. Yes. Question number six. Act two opens with Trip and Brooke talking about the parts of the book that Trip has read so far. Trip points out that the way Brooke has described their parents in the book paints them as completely immoral sociopaths and in no way resembles the people he knows them to be. Brooke tells him to stop trying to make it harder to decide what to do, publish or not publish. And Trip tells her that this should be the hardest decision she ever makes in her life. What reason does he give for this? Why does he think it should be the hardest decision she ever makes? Because of everything his par- their parents have done for her. Mm-hmm. Um, they yeah. paid for her uh, when she when she was depressed and she um, went away. They they took yeah. care of all that. They yeah, they didn't just pay for her. They were like there, feeding her meal after meal, and and like at her bedside. They dropped their life in California and just did everything to save their child. Yeah, which is actually, uh, which is actually when you first meet the when you first meet them, you don't consider that depth of humanity in the characters. But this is again another way that the playwright is like, no, these are, you know, these people have flaws, but they are also, they have highlights. They have highlights. <laughs> they they love their children. And and not only does he say that, you know, they really love you and they have been really good to you. He also says that if she publishes this book this way, it's basically going to kill them. Not as, like not literally kill them, but just shatter them. And he's like. This, this should be a hard decision. <laughs> you know, even if their choices 
led to Henry eventually killing himself. They love their kids and shouldn't that matter some? Um, good. Question seven. At about 8.30 that night, still Christmas Eve here, Polly finally emerges. What do she and Lyman think of the book? Well, Lyman actually doesn't want to read it. He 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 defers to his daughter and um, he just grants his he just he just gives his um, uh, sign of approval, his seal of approval, his stamp of approval. Um, But Polly um, really, really disgusted (laughs) with her daughter. Um, And she does not She... she does not. She does not accept that anything in that book is true. She thinks it's uh, she thinks it's um, all make believe, basically. Yes, and, all and I up. mean, and she's she like Trip is saying, "Is this what you think of us? You think we're complete sociopaths who drove our son to kill himself? This is what you've thought all this time? Is it like we sat there holding your hand and told you we loved you?" Yeah. Bonus follow up, Polly who is in, you know, high levels of rage, uh, gives kudos to her sister, Silda, for mm-hmm. being the silent contributor to the book and asks her a question. Do you remember what question she asks her sister? So she asks her if this was the moment when she started to drink again, when she was helping, uh, when she was helping Brooke with the book. Um, mm-hmm. And she believes that that might have been the catalyst. Yeah, because Silda had been sober for five years mm-hmm. and just, boom, you know, they brought that up at the beginning of the play. Why did she start drinking again? Oh, why do alcoholics do anything? <clears throat> but that's a good question. <laughs> why did you, why did you start drinking again? Next question. What do we learn? What are all these details? Polly starts to read excerpts from Brooke's book. Uh, and what are, what are these details tell us? What do we learn? The book explains how one night Henry was attacked by his father, or it seems that Henry was being um, assaulted by his father, smacked, uh, uh, smacked around by his father, and then uh, he ran off into the night and disappeared. Um, yeah, Brooke, yeah, that Brooke, Brooke said that she could see Henry out at the pool with her dad, and he was pleading for something she didn't know what Mm -hmm. and then Lyman started hitting him and then he ran off and then Lyman called the police on his own son yes um because Lyman wanted him to be safe in custody yeah 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 and that's that's when Lyman finally is like you wrote what you think what and he is desperately trying to explain like I wasn't attacking him i i lashed out because he said this terrible thing and i called the police because i wanted him safe in custody i didn't want anything bad to happen to him yes oh bonus follow-up silda savagely attacks polly for her conservative choices saying that she's happy to let men and women die in this war that's currently in 2004 happening in the desert without speaking out against the Republicans because she occasionally has dinner with the president who launched the war. (laughs) But Polly is like, there's a slight problem in all of your little righteousness. (laughs) What truth bomb does Polly drop about Aunt Silda? Aunt Silda. 
was in a drunken stupor when Henry reached out to her and mm-hmm. uh, he could not and he was not able to get any help from her. She was uh, in no condition to help. Yeah. So in Brooke's timeline of things, some kind of, you know, the bomb went off. Henry didn't know it was going to go off. He goes to the parents, begs for help. Dad beats him. He runs away. Dad calls the police. And now she's got this tiny piece of information that wasn't he left home and then he went and killed himself. Then he went and tried to get help from Aunt Silva, who was too drunk to help him. Never mentioned it. That was not brought up in all of the many conversations that she and Silda had about the book. All right. Yes. Question nine. Finale time. It appears that Brooke and Polly are going to cut each other out of their lives for good. Brooke says she's leaving and getting on a plane back to New York. She is exiting the stage. And as she starts to exit, Lyman calls out, Brooke, don't. You don't understand. And then he turns to his wife and says, I cannot do this anymore, Polly. I can't. I just can't. What can't he do anymore? Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Well, this is when he tells, um, this is when he, <laughs> he can't keep the secret. He can't keep this secret anymore. He can't keep the, the truth. Right. Basically the truth about what happened to Henry. Um, even though Polly's also at this time trying to encourage him not to say anything, but he reveals the truth uh, that Henry actually is still alive. He ain't dead. They covered it up. He's up in Seattle. I somewhere. was not. Ex- no, he's in Canada. Oh, he's up north. He's up north. <laughs> yes. Polly and Lyman helped their son escape to Canada and fake his own death so he could be safe and not get sent to jail for the crimes that he was innocent for. Bidding. And and that's why they don't want Brooke to publish the book, because there was never any body found. They don't want any scrutiny brought in. They say the Justice Department calls us every year to say, you know, have you heard from your son? Have you heard any weird phone calls where there's just like you pick up the phone but there's no answer you only hear silence they are desperately trying to keep henry safe even 20 years later i was not expecting that the first time i read this i mean i really just took it on face value that henry was yeah, gone i did so. too <laughs> That was such a radical reverse. Like, I thought we were headed one way and then, like, everything swung the other way. (laughs) Excellent. All right. Last question. There is a final short scene at the end of the play, Act 2, Scene 2. It's suddenly six years later. So Act the first three scenes are all Christmas Eve 2004. But now we're in March of 2010, and Brooke is reading excerpts from her recently published book at a bookstore in Seattle. What do we learn of the intervening years? We learned that um, Lyman and Polly have passed. Uh, and um, so basically she waited until till they passed to publish. She honored their, their wishes. But more importantly... 
She was a real part of their lives. She bought the house next door to them. She was with her father when he passed away and helped him through his illness. And then she spent the rest of her mother's day sitting with her by the pool, having fun and laughing and really getting to know her. I mean, she really paints this beautiful family picture that had not been possible before the truth finally came out. Like the fact that they were burying all this trauma and pain and behind this lie kept the family apart. And and then they had six years where they were all together, which I thought was beautiful. And I have one last little bonus follow-up. And if you don't know the answer, that's okay. We don't have to include it. But bonus follow-up question. What is the last line of the play? She says, how will I find him? <laughs> how will how I will find him? She repeats it a couple of times. Tied... But, but it's in like yeah. the manuscript. I think she says she says it in the manuscript. Mm-hmm. But then she says it as... Out yeah, out to, to us. Yeah. Yes. She's telling a story. She's reading from, um, you know, a time when she and Henry were quite young. And he she was chasing after him and she lost him. And so she's in the context of this story from their past saying, how will I find him? But also, you know, we know the truth that Henry is out there somewhere. So her saying, how will I find him, keeps that quite alive, which I think it's I think it's an amazing thing when a play can end and there's this whole world that can continue in your imagination about yeah, it. Yeah, you definitely want to know what happens when they do reunite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. Well done. Cheers to you. You've. Past the quiz. <laughs> if you grade it on a curve. Sure. Um, awesome. Hopefully the overview and the quiz questions have given you a clear sense of what happens in this show. But if you'd like a more detailed outline of the plot, you can check out the summary of the play that we have in the synopsis section of our website. There's a link to this in the podcast show notes episode description. Now we're going to move on to the analysis section. Plays were meant to be seen, not read, but before production is ready to be seen by audiences, even before rehearsals and production meetings begin, the job of the theater artist is to come to a deeper understanding of the text by looking at it through an analytic lens. In this section, we'll get to know this play a little better by taking a look at it through a single piece of analysis. This week, we're going to be using a technique called forwards. Hashtag forward which is a technique that Jennifer is going to tell us all about. Well, let me ask you first. What do you remember about Fords? What is this after two seasons and lots of hashtags? um, What is what is a forward to you? What do you remember that to be? Um, Basically, it's something sort of introduced near the beginning of the play that is sort of paid off at the end or paid off later on in the text. Yeah. And when you say paid off, what do you mean? So uh, it's an idea, a concept that's introduced early on. Um, Let me think of an example from this play. Uh, Silda's... Silda, bro, (laughs) So Silda's Silda's alcohol, uh, or when did you start drinking again? Silda, basically, is sort of introduced early on, um, and then we find the answer. Mm-hmm. We find the answer later on in the play. It's kind of set up early in the play, um, and, you know, and then we actually find the truth about, or the truth to that later on. 
Yes. So a forward, the idea of the forward is that plays don't just drop things in your lap. They want you to get interested in something so that you're, it's almost like you're primed for it or you're curious about it. The audience is like leaning forward, like, well, wait, what does that mean? Um, I love the idea, the, it, my favorite example of this is uh, in the play, How I Learned to Drive. The opening line of that play is sometimes to teach a lesson, you have to tell a secret. Now, if she had just said, here is the lesson I have for you, then like, boom, you've just got the words. But the minute you say to someone, I have to tell you a secret, it's like, oh, you do. Yes. If you go into work and one of your coworkers is like, can I tell you a secret? I'm like, yeah, tell me, what is it? Secrets get you curious in a way that if you had just come out and said, here's the information, you're not as like curious about what's coming next. Your focus is forward. So this play throughout, they have casual conversation. Everyone's laughing. Everyone's joking. Everyone's teasing. It's doing that family thing. And then there are these little forward bombs that's kind of like, what? What now? I'm sorry, what now? You know, right away, uh, I already mentioned that one line that Polly has. Um, it's our fault, Lyman. We failed at providing normalcy. We had two children, and both of them have entirely abnormal careers. And Brooke says, mm-hmm. three, actually. Mm-hmm. And Polly says, excuse me. And Brooke says, three children. And Polly says, three, of course. Now, those are the words. But if you can think about that moment between, like the tension between those two actors and everything they're feeling, both of them so righteous, like just why did she say two, but that she had three children? There is a story there. I am curious about what Mm -hmm. it is. And now you're on the edge of your seat. (laughs) And now, yeah, this whole, you want an audience to be curious. You want an audience to want to be, you know, come back from intermission because they want the answers or they want to know how this is going to play out or they want the information. So when you're working on a text, if you can highlight the moments that you think are pointing an audience forward and forward and forward. And they can happen at any time. I mean, Lyman has the biggest forward of all. As Brooke is walking off the stage, Brooke, don't, you don't understand. And then to Polly, I cannot do this anymore, Polly. I can't, I just can't. What, Mm -hmm. what, what can't you do anymore? Wait a minute. I mean, he, it's such, there's such a world behind that statement and you know it. You don't know what the world is, but it's something big. I can't do it anymore. Well, what can't you do? That is big enough to stop his daughter from walking out of their lives. He doesn't even direct it at her. He directs it to his wife. And Brooke's like, okay, I want that information. So when you're working on a text, whether you're the actor or you're the director, or even to a certain extent, a sound engineer, a lighting designer, like you want to find these moments of focus because you don't want to have a, a forward in the text and have the audience not catch it, right? If Brooke says three, actually, and Polly goes, excuse me, three children. Oh, of course, three. Like if they act like there's nothing to that line, then you drop the forward. But if you create the tension between the two of them, you know, it, it, 
another thing that I think is really important in terms of staging is movement pulls focus. So if Polly and Brooke are facing off at that moment, but like for some reason Trip and and Lyman are playing basketball, like your 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 attention is split. So it's like you want to know where these moments are so you know how to craft them to create that greatest sense of being pulled forward, that curiosity into the next moment. So it all starts in the reading of the text. And there are a lot of forwards in this play. They take you right from page one, right up until this big confession at the end. And even that end, that end line. How will I find him? <laughs> will I, how will I find him? <clears throat> That's a forward. You're like, well, how do they find them? Like, uh, for me, a play like that, I walk out and I'm now writing the next story in my head. Like, I'm imagining what happens. I got, I've got it all planned out. By the way, I know what happens <laughs> in the sequel. <laughs> the movie in my mind. So that's why we're always saying hashtag forward because anything that makes us curious about what comes next. It's doing its job. It's engaging you. Hashtag forward. Lovely. Lovely. If you're curious about the techniques we've used on this or other episodes of the show, you can find more information about them on our website. There's also a link to that in the show notes. And remember, it doesn't matter what techniques you choose. Taking the time to comb through a text with a deliberate analytic task will always result in a clearer sense of what that show is about. It is now dramaturgy time. Yes, this is the section where we each share an example of something we learned while doing research on the show. Yay, dramaturgy time. My friend, what's your dramaturgy? I'm so curious. Um, Well, actually, interestingly enough, so I actually found something out that was uh, that I thought was interesting just because today they're having the uh, Women's March uh, in D.C. um, And... uh, I say, ugh, because they're having a pro-life march, which is really, I think, a march against women. But uh... where in Vermont? No, that's what the. Oh march yes, yes, yes. Sorry, the it's one a... here in D.C. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a woman's <clears throat> march, but it is it is about women having less control and autonomy over their. Body. Right, it's pro pro-life. Um, so yeah, so actually, I actually found something about John Robin Bates being assaulted in D.C. Um, when Ooh. they had a, um, uh, about John Robin Bates being assaulted in D.C. Uh, about f- five years ago in 2017. Um, he was here in D.C. Uh, for the Women's March, which was held uh, on the 21st. Um, and he was actually assaulted by a drunk Trump supporter um, the night before that. He and his partner, or his husband, they were dining with friends, approached by a group of exhilarated and pointedly celebratory Trump people, um, and they were they were uh, they got anti-Semitic um, slurs hurled at them, uh, and they were threatened with death, um, and then they were thrown to the ground. So he filed <sighs> charges. <laughs> um, yeah, but. I was like, oh, that's great. Right here I had, in my I had not hometown. heard any of that. Yeah, and I... Where was he? They were dining. It doesn't say where they were actually dining. Yeah, I mean, it also says that it wasn't like they knew who he was or anything, so it was a personal attack. They were just... 
they, they weren't targeting him or anything like that. Bates, we were continuing to say goodbye, and there were a few ladies who had a central casting and coltery in uniform and hair. <laughs> and this 350-pound, enormous, red-headed linebacker guy who clearly saw a group of East Coast Jewish liberal homosexual sodomite communists congregating in their black clothes saying goodbye. He went zig heil and saluted us. Whew. Yeah. He picked me up like I was a sack of rice, threw me down, and I was covered in blood. Good Lord. That's terrible. Yeah, and, like, there's something that's doubly upsetting about it happening in D.C. Yeah, exactly. How dare you? How dare you get out of my hometown? Well. It's just another another symbol of politics going absolutely cuckoo that just see it feels so different from the politics in this play though well my that's upsetting dramaturgy mine is not upsetting what is it (laughs) well they reference they uh, when when trip and brooke are talking brooke says that she recently had the flu and watched all of the Hillary movies. She said that there was a box set that went all the way from here comes Hillary to hasta la vista Hillary. And uh, it just reminded me immediately, like the era they were talking about and the way they described the movies. I assumed that this was sort of supposed to be like the Gidget movies. And I, I knew that there were a bunch of Gidget movies and I knew that Sally Field played Gidget But that was like it. Like I had 1960s vibe, surfers and Sally Field. So I just got curious (laughs) and I actually read the whole plot outline of the original Gidget movie, which was in 1959. And it was just it was both it was both kind of like a wild ride and also just kind of like adorably 1960s. Mm. It's, you know. (laughs) <laughs> the parents want Gidget to date this nice boy that they've picked out for her and she doesn't want anything to she doesn't want to meet him doesn't want to talk to him and she goes to the beach with her friends and like they hang out with these surfers and so she falls for this surfer that everybody calls Moondoggy and but there's this other guy called Big Kahuna who's like twice her age and is a veteran of the Korean War and so like she keeps like going back and forth between these two guys And there's a lot of singing and a lot of surfing. And finally, at the end, like, she gets in trouble with the police because she's driving and doesn't have her license. And her parents have to come pick her up from the police. And her mom gives her a needlepoint that her grandmother made that says, to be a real woman is to bring out the best in a man. And I was like, oh, my God, this world. Um, And then at the end of the movie, it turns out that Moondoggy is the guy that the parents had wanted to introduce her to in the first place. So there were six Gidget movies. Um, Gidget, Gidget goes Hawaiian. Gidget goes to Rome. Gidget grows up. Gidget gets married. And Gidget's summer reunion. And there was also one season of Gidget as a TV show. And that's where Sally Field played her. Gidget was um, her nickname. Her character's real name was Francine Lawrence. But when, but everybody called her Gidget. And what I thought was kind of interesting was 
that uh, a different actress played her in every one of these incarnations. <laughs> there was no holdover. The guy who played Moondoggy was in three of the movies, but each time there was a different wow, Gidget. I didn't know that. <laughs> I remember the TV show yeah. with, uh, with Sally Field. I used to watch that in reruns when I was a kid. But uh... I never saw that as reruns. I don't, I don't know why I, I had Sally Field in my head with it. Yeah, but it was, was just like kind that, of like... my first introduction to Sally Field, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was just this uh, interesting window into the world of pop culture in 1959, which I felt like was kind of this realm that Lyman and Polly and Silda had always, you know, the 1960s world that they inhabited in terms of the arts. So it was kind of funny and weird. <laughs> to be a real woman is to bring out the best in a man. Why isn't that on? I'm going to get t-shirt. that made. It. I'm definitely giving that to my daughter. Can you imagine Madeline's reaction? Oh, excellent. Kindling. Just what I needed. If you would like to learn more about the research and analysis that we did for this play, we post all our findings on the Patreon. So if you sign up to be a supporter there, you can see everything we uncovered. Now that we've gotten familiar with the structure of the play, we get to talk about our reactions to the text and our artistic interpretations of how a play like this could be brought to life. Bring me to life. So I, I, I had a handful of production ideas. Um, I started thinking um, in my first read about casting. I just started picturing actors. And the one that stayed with me the most was that I would love to see Harrison Ford play Lyman. Mm. (laughs) I think it's so important that he have that warmth and that charisma. Like you have to love him as a dad. And uh, I thought either Sigourney Weaver or Allison Janney would make a great Polly. And Elizabeth Moss for Brooke. Okay. And when I was going to do it for our theater company, for Open Door, um, I wanted to cast Josh, who we worked with on The Importance of Being Earnest here. Um, he was our our Jack. Jack, Jack yes. Um, I think he'd be, he's a, an enormously talented actor. I think he would be great as, uh, as Trip. Mm-hmm. But I also saw a product. I saw a movie, a Daniel Radcliffe movie, with Adam Driver, where he had kind of this really easy, almost wacky charisma. And so I was thinking that Adam Driver, you know, like he played Han Solo's son as a uh, Kylo Ren. But I was like, wow, he would make a great trip. <laughs> Um, which I wouldn't have known if I had only seen him do kind of like his really scary stuff, but. Hans, uh, Hans Solo yeah, and I, I Kylo really... Ren in the same production. Exactly. <laughs> no, we. <laughs> I'm there for it. That, that would sell tickets. It. That's for sure. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And even though she has left us, Carrie 
Carrie Fisher would have made a great Zelda. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> she would have been so fun as Zelda. Such a great role and such mm-hmm. a fun role. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Were you having any production ideas as you read through this? I thought it was interesting set-wise because it says in the beginning or in the stage directions how um, there is that uh, what that that specific type of fireplace, um, mm-hmm. and even says, "Hold on, let me actually read the exact thing because it's like, oh, it's so it's so old, it's new again, kind of thing." This is kind of the way it was phrased. <laughs> um, so it's like you know, it's yeah, mid-century style, modern yeah. got so hot. Yeah. I'm like, is mm-hmm. it though? Especially. Oh my gosh! Yeah, okay. mid-century modern in general, like, ah. took off. So, ah, uh, yeah. There's a metal fireplace, one of the Scandinavian flying saucer types from the '60s, giving off a nice glow. Desert French Regency in style, decorated for movie star circa 1965, but somehow it still works. Perhaps better now than it did in its time. So. Keep in mind, that's all in the italics. That's what they did for that production. You can do whatever you want. Right. But I mean, using that as like a jumping off point. (laughs) I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like, how easy is that to reproduce? Like, yeah, what what other direction or what else can you do to um, symbolize that? That flair, that pizzazz. Um, I don't know. I think because it's a static set, you really want to you really Mm want to invest a lot in the look of it. Except it's not a static set. This, I feel like, super problematic. Mm. Like another big problem with the text is it establishes the rules and lives by them for 99% of the show. And then we're somewhere else. Exactly. So I think it would be very important that the play open somehow somewhere else and that there be some kind of transition between scenes there needs to be a way for us to jump somewhere else at the end and not have the audience be like what the f- just mm. happened like it's whiplash um so i feel like that would that would be something i would want to find a way to balance the end out and i don't know what we could show in the beginning um or you know maybe there could sh- show like an old home movie at the very beginning. That's that scene that Brooke is describing at the mm-hmm. very end of the book. And then maybe instead of closing out while we see Brooke in this bookstore, maybe we're seeing, you know, a video of her in this bookstore so that it it opens and closes with these other kind of bookends. I don't know. The other thing that I was thinking as I read through that the second time when I was doing my analysis, I was thinking about how Henry's presence in the show, how he's so much a part of the production, even though he has been dead for 20 years, he's still very much alive for all these five people. And it kind of reminded me of the dad in Glass Menagerie, how it's this extra character that has utterly influenced everything, but is not seen and suddenly I was like oh I want Henry there and I don't know how that would work but I kind of wanted Henry walking through between the scenes Mm. I don't know I'd really want to think about how to make that end moment 
not as jarring so that the audience was ready to see it rather than sit there for, you know, 90% of the scene going, wait, what? Why are we here? We were somewhere else the whole time. Are we still in the same play? What just happened? Yeah, it is weird. <laughs> it is weird. Yeah, I wondered if mm-hmm. that was, uh, if the play was originally, if the play originally ended without that. And this was actually mm-hmm. added on in like a revision or something. But this is how you've always seen it. What do you mean? How I like imagined it or have seen it? Oh, you've I've never, never seen, seen it done? a lot of. Well, this is I've how you've always, you've not seen the... different um, versions of the script then. Okay. No. Okay. Trip had a really problematic line. And it's just like, he had two problematic lines. He's talking about his show and he's like, you know, he was talking about the judge and the jury and how they're all celebrities and like, it's funny. And he's like, and if some of them are men, well, why not? Mm. Suddenly I like you a lot less, Trip. But of course, this was written like at the time of Jackass being made into movies and... That was a big part yeah. of Jackass. So it's like a certain kind of dude got used to that being a certain kind of okay joke. And that dude is definitely Trip. And then, mm-hmm. And then when he's talking about her husband, he he was really he was really angry that Polly was trying to defend Brooke's ex husband. And he just went on this whole tear about how Brooke liked that he looked like Lord Byron's little cousin. You can't say Mm -hmm. stuff like that anymore and have people still want to be on your team. That's problematic because you can't. Like, dear John Robin Bates, can I please drop these five words for your play? Can you please give me something else that they can say? See, yeah, that's a solution. There's a solution right there. Um, I wa- <laughs> Directly appealed <laughs> yeah. to the playwright. <laughs> you ha- you've got to know. You have got to know that this is not cool anymore. Yeah, yeah. you just got Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I get that it was cool. You know, it's funny because I feel like when uh, Polly uses the word and it's like, oh, God. And then it's like, what? I don't have a racist exactly. bone in my body. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned that before about certain um, references or stuff being uh, dated and things like that. And I wonder, um, I wonder, because I feel like, yeah, if oh, you Wendy, were to ask wonder- the playwright, you know, could you take out so-and-so? Could you take out so-and-so? But this particular line, you would have to take that out. And you'd have to take out her reaction to it. Although her Brooke's reaction mm-hmm. to that, uh, I feel like is very informative. You know, these are who these characters are. And these are how they're, you know, how, how you know, mm-hmm. how they've been drawn. So, yeah, part of me is like, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah you kind of need something, <laughs> something like that. But does it have to be? that um but i get i mean the problem the the problem is audiences would have had it the audiences would have been like oh that character's problematic they wouldn't have hated her and i think you know think about our conversation with wendy and how utterly unforgiving she was to the language in Mm -hmm. play. like i think there are theater goers who will shut down 
with language like that and not come back. And I just, even if they do come back, it's going to take them a while. And it's the language is not creating the reaction that the playwright initially intended for the audience to have. And that's why it's really problematic. The world has evolved and people will respond to those words differently. You know, when I saw the production of The Secret Garden at Court Theater a couple years ago, Dr. Craven does not slap Mary. And I got so used to hearing that slap in the recording, I knew exactly where it happened. But people are going to react very differently to a grown man striking a 10-year-old girl in 2016 than they would have in 1990. Like, it wasn't good that he did it. It was definitely, like, a bad moment. But you didn't end the play thinking that Neville should go to jail. (laughs) So I just think it's important to consider the relation, the intended relationship. You know, the audience is definitely supposed to see Polly as problematic. But I don't think the playwright wrote her for us to hate her. I really don't. Not, not, definitely not at that time. Sure. Um, The evolution, Mm -hmm. yeah, evolution is sort of... (laughs) shifting yeah the way that mm-hmm. the way the audience is consuming it so that makes it tough yeah. like i i also remember in 25th annual putnam county spelling bee at one point the barfy character uses the r word and when that show was written i remember that word everybody used that word not everybody lots of people use that word to mean oh that's mm-hmm. so stupid and it was like a little edgy, like Deb used it all the time on Dexter and we weren't supposed to hate her. We were just supposed to think she was kind of foul mouthed. And I remember directing it in 2014 and thinking this, this word has changed. And if he says this, I just made the choice. He didn't say it. I just like give him something else to say. I don't care if I'm breaking copyright law. If he says this, this will make the play worse. Because we weren't supposed to be angry at him. We weren't supposed to think he was a bigot. We were just supposed to think he was being rude. Things change. And it does make certain texts complicated. (laughs) Harder to produce. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. 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 I did love... I I really like when I'm working on the analysis of the play, if I can know what city we're in and I can know what the day is, and then I can know like a specific benchmark of the day, like sunrise or sunset, it can tell me, like, unless in the play they're like, okay, well, it's 9.15. If the scene doesn't give me that information, but I know the whole play is happening on Christmas Eve and I know they're in Palm Springs and it says the sun is setting as the scene begins, then I can just Google what time does the sun set in Palm Springs on December 24th. And suddenly I know it's 4.43 p.m. I love having those specific moments answered. <laughs> I don't know why, but no, I good do. That, that d- I details, like that yeah. clarity of location. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like combing through a scene while I'm working on the exposition and getting those corners because it's going to change the lighting. If you know that the sun is setting, if you know what time it is, 
over the course of the play, it's going to change how it all looks. One of the things that really stood out to me in the play, both reads, was when Brooke is talking about imagining Henry's suicide. Now she pictures it all the time. And Lyman is like, you do what? You, you, what? you imagine his suicide? Why? And, and at first I was just like, what? I, I mean, maybe it's just me, but I imagine my I have imagined my friend's suicide countless times. I feel in some ways quite trapped there. And I I have just sort of assumed that anybody who has lost someone to suicide can't help but like it's not like you mm-hmm. want to think about it. It's just part of the grief is that you're kind of trapped there and picturing it. Um but then it kind of makes sense that Lyman doesn't get that. Because he didn't actually right, lose right. his son to suicide. He, he saw him put the shoes down and, and walk away from the ferry. <laughs> yeah, that's handled really well, too. <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the parents always know that it's he's alive. And mm-hmm. uh, what, a, what a wonderful sort of secret that you get to have as the actor, the actor throughout the whole mm-hmm. beginning of the play. Yeah, actually, there's a really amazing line because um, uh, Silda says something about she doesn't understand what her daughter has gone through. And Polly says, oh, I understand. I was there. I fed her when she refused to eat. I sat there in Sag Harbor. I sat there in Sag Harbor in that dark little cottage. Don't you dare tell me I don't understand my daughter. That is one area, the area of having children where you cannot presume to condescend to me because I when I am called, I show up, okay? And I feel like that line is doubly amazing. And because Polly does show up. If you if you know the ending, you know that she dropped everything to, you know, majorly break the law to try and save her son's life. She was like, boom. So it wasn't just that she was dropping everything there to help Brooke. And that she and Lyman abandoned Henry. Nope. She's there. She is there. She is there. And the other edge to that is that Silda did not show up when Henry needed her. So, and so Silda knows this when Polly says that line. And Polly knows this when she says the line. But the audience does it. So it's like (laughs) just a gift for the actors. (laughs) I mean, it's almost like the playwrights like, no, no, I won't take any credit. The, the, just the actors will do it. It's incredible. And almost nobody is going to know it except for the actors and the director. I think that's amazing. And the people who go back and see the second that. and third <laughs> time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, in a, in a very different way. It's sort of like the sixth sense. It's so like once you have once you know what the end is and you go back and you're yeah. like, oh dang, the acting in that scene is very different to me now. <laughs> Community Voices is the part of the podcast where we get to showcase your thoughts and insights. This can be reactions audience members have had to the conversations we're having on the podcast, themes you see in the text ideas you have about production or elements you feel like we overlooked. 
This week, we are sharing a voice message sent in from Irene Halabozek in response to Season 3, Episode 5, where we discussed the lovely musical, The Secret Garden. Hello. Please leave a message after the tone. Hi, this is Irene from Essex, Vermont. Long-time listener, first-time caller. I just wanted to say <laughs> I am a huge fan of the show, and I was really excited to hear your review of The That's Secret great. Garden. Just like this was your first musical review, The Secret Garden was my debut musical as a lighting designer and set builder for the Valley Players in Wheatsfield back in 2012. So this play has a special spot in my heart. It introduced me to the Vermont theater scene and started a career in lighting design for me. Working on The Secret Garden was both challenging and fun. Our production had hand-painted portraits on the wall of each actor's character, Mm. uh, which were then backlit to reveal their ghosts in the portraits for a really haunting look. Uh, We used color to portray life and death throughout the show, starting with red to portray the cholera pandemic, and cooler colors to portray a feeling of death and lack of intimacy within the manor itself. Of course, the end of the show was warm and bright and green. I remember spending weeks trying to figure out how to make flowers bloom on the spot for the final scenes. In the end, the production was a huge success uh, for our little theater. Thank you both for doing what you do and for giving us more reasons to read more plays. Oh, and P.S. Jennifer, I loved the singing. Belt it out, girl. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) Well, that's phenomenal. I love that idea of having... The portraits of those people and and going from, you know, seeing what's on the painting to seeing what's behind the painting. That does sound creepy, but like in a really beautiful, haunting yeah, way. Totally. Thank you so much, Irene. First time caller, long time <laughs> listener. <laughs> <laughs> we love hearing from our fans. This is fantastic. You put the fan in fantastic. I see. I see. <laughs> <laughs> if you have thoughts or reactions you'd like to share, we would love to hear them. You can either send us an email at readmoreplacepodcast at gmail.com, post your ideas on our Read More Place Facebook group, or you can send us a voice message just like Irene. Instructions are on our website, readmoreplace.com. And finally, to wrap up, we want to talk about what this play is about. The goal with all deep looks into a play is for the artist or theater goer to be able to answer for themselves the question of what they think a play is about. It's where ideas for productions come from and how a play lives on in our hearts and minds after the lights go down at the end of the show. And most importantly, it's where we get our own sense of knowledge about a play rather than taking the thoughts of someone else's because we all get to decide what a work of art means to us. So what you got, Ricardo? What is this play about in your heart? This play, I think, uh, at the end of the day, is just about truth, getting to the truth. Um, Family struggles to get to the truth, um, hiding the truth. Um, But I think primarily this speech that Tripp has... um, towards uh towards the towards the end of the play like his big mic drop moment i guess i feel like sums it up the most so if i could just say this um he talks about he's he's talking to his mom he's talking to polly he's telling her i can't i couldn't give uh i couldn't give a 
talk about literature, mom. I don't know the first thing about it. I say that we all live with each other's divergent truths. And in spite of having deeply conflicting accounts, which don't matter anyway anymore, because it's in the past and we're all getting older. And if this is heading towards desolation, which I can see it is, you will all regret it. So give your daughter a pass and your sister to both of you stop fighting like weasels in a pit because you'll be scared and it won't matter as you take your last breath. All what will have mattered is how you loved. And I think that's ultimately my big takeaway from this play. Uh, mm -hmm. I feel that that drive to be that desire to be loved from all the characters that this that. Um, yeah, and yeah. he was consistent throughout the play. I, he he was always saying, you know, don't waste one more day of living mm -hmm. better. Don't damage and ruin whatever little bit of happiness you have. I I I love that he was this beacon of sanity. Yeah. Not that he wasn't flawed he was himself. Always trying but to remind yeah. people. No, he still was mm -hmm. able to come uh, to have the wherewithal to to impart some knowledge on his his sister yeah, and his to family. Beg everybody, everybody yeah. to be more yeah. loving. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think the play is about. What about you? Um, I think this show is about hating in others the things that you can't bear mm -hmm. in yourself. <laughs> um, Polly won't let Silda say that a shirt she got is a poochy top rather than a knockoff. She tells her, listen, there's no shame in being careful and having to scrounge for bargains. It's, um, it's admirable. It's the trying to pass that gets me. All I'm saying is don't try to pull one thing over me. I don't like it when people pretend things are one way when they're actually <laughs> clearly another. Oh, you don't? Really, <laughs> Polly? I mean, like, staging your son's suicide and letting your other children think he's dead for 20 years? I mean, that kind of pretending? <laughs> um, this is a story about how trying to pretend something horrific didn't happen and how that doesn't work. If you paint over rotted wood, it doesn't actually fix anything. It might look a little bright and shiny for a while, but the rot is still there eating away at the wood. The Wyeths have been trying not to talk about Henry for 20 years. And the parents don't want to talk about it because they can't talk about what they did. And then the kids don't talk about it. And it's ripping all of them apart. It's been eating away at Brooke for so long. They're not talking about it, not having it make any sense, that it has led her to a profound depression and then led her to write this book. Since her family won't talk about it, she is in dialogue. She's in the dialogue she can have, which is with herself and the book. I think the play is about assumptions people make when they aren't given the truth. Silda and Brooke especially make terrible assumptions. And if Polly and Lyman had ever bothered to communicate, they wouldn't have decided those terrible things. It's also about being seen. Brooke says everything in life is about being seen or not seen. She thinks her book is about what happened to Henry being seen, which, of course, her parents desperately don't want. They want their son to be able to live safely unseen. I do think it's a deeply held human need to be seen. Like as kids, we're always trying to get our parents to see, you know, like, did you see what I did? I took three steps and jumped off the diamond. Did you see? Watch me, watch me. And I think as adults, that doesn't really go away. I think many of us want recognition. Mm -hmm. Like we just want our efforts to be seen. 
And I, I also think it's a deeply human instinct to pray that people don't see us when we do something wrong or when we mess up or something that will get us in trouble. But ultimately, I think that this is a story about how the realest kinds of communication free us to love the people who matter most and live our lives with something that kind of looks like joy. Beautiful. You've been listening to Read More Plays. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to see all our posts related to this and other episodes, as well as post your own comments about other desert cities. If you like this episode, we would be so grateful if you left a review on Apple Podcasts. It is the best way for us to reach new listeners, which we really want to do. You could also tell a few friends about us so our theater community can grow. Come and join the community of incredible people who are supporting us on Patreon. (laughs) It's where we post bonus content like video clips of extended conversations we've had while recording each episode, what our analysis and research for the show looks like, bloopers from our recording session, and more. This episode of Read More Plays was produced by me, Ricardo Frederick Evans, Jennifer Sassaman, and Samuel fitzwater Bichark. Our theme music is by the incredible Kaylin Harewood with additional music by Bob Sassaman. That's my dad! We'd like to thank Irene Halabozek for her fantastic Community Voices message, as well as all the amazing people who are supporting us on Patreon. We are infinitely grateful for your support. Our next episode will air February 6th when we will be discussing two, two, two plays in one (laughs) when we go all in for the comedies. Servant of Two Masters by Carlo Goldoni and One Man, Two Governors by Richard Bean. Until then, I'm Jennifer. I'm Ricardo. Reminding you to read more plays. The difference between Smiling Sam and Not Smiling Sam is substantial.